Welcome to Law My Praxis. We'd like to take this opportunity to tell you listeners how much we appreciate you. We'd never give you up, let you down, run around, or desert you. Yes, it's 2009 and we just rickrolled you. I always say that I have a pedagogy of, hey kids, it works for me right now, but maybe in 20 years time it's not going to work so well. Then it it just becomes creepy. Yeah. (laughs) I know it's so hard to figure out how you're allowed to greet people, right? Mm-hmm. But especially the youngs. Yeah. The youngs, the youngs. Definitely like, what's up with this? It's a very good pedagogy, you know, the simplest questions. And I think the more advanced the students, the more necessary it is that they should ask simple questions. What is a novel? You know? <laughs> I was uh, writing some lecture slides today and I was trying to include like a couple of like funny memes about poetry to be down with the kids. And I was a bit like, okay, I found a couple but they reference Harry Potter. And like, that was good like a few years ago, but I'm like this generation, 17 year olds, like I don't think they give a shit about Hogwarts, so. No, I think they more canceled Hogwarts because they're so politically aware, which is great, but even <laughs> still I'm like. Yeah, right, which is fair. But it makes my job really hard, Louise. <laughs> Millennial, I think we've canceled all the cool things. So what are we meant to reference? One of my references, how am I supposed to be hip and cool? I think I've more than once like earnestly requested from the tech overlords that somebody develop an app that updates the pop culture references in our lectures. Because like I've been teaching like history of British literature for like 15 years or something like that. And when I'm trying to talk about like, you know, the rise of the public sphere and print culture and like Tatler magazine and stuff, I'm sort of saying, you know, Alexander Pope, this is really about, you know, the Kardashians or Lindsay Lohan or whatever. (laughs) They're 15 years too old and like none of this applies like who are the misbehaving aristocrats now i need like a bot that constantly updates those (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's like it's like when you went to go and read heat magazine they're like who the fuck reads magazines what are you talking about (laughs) which is why we just all need to be on tiktok and (laughs) no i refuse alex is refusing because it just annoys me to join tiktok so when she sends me tiktoks like she sends me like the Reddit link. This is on Reddit that someone's posted a TikTok. <laughs> I'm just like, let's join fucking TikTok. Just do it. Just no, do it. I like to do that at remove. It's called post TikTok. Uh, so you're rickrolling <laughs> her with TikToks. Oh my God. I actually, um, yes, I am rickrolling her with TikToks, but I also then did do a rickroll today in my last, my big course announcement. You did like an actual rickroll? Yeah, so I, I had to send out emails to like 450 students and at the very end I was like, hey everybody, well done for getting this far as a treat, here's a poem like performance for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm really looking forward to the first lecture and I really hope they're just like, what was that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I think Rickroll has enough it has enough cultural valency. Like I'm not that old. Yeah. My pal's a drama teacher teaching secondary school drama and he let them have music on um, in the background and one of the kids recently requested Rick Astley but my pal is a massive Rick Astley fan and had somehow never realized that it was a thing the whole Rick rolling thing it just completely bypassed her because she's like a massive Rick Astley fan so she was like oh yeah he's great and like putting on the back catalog and the kids were like it's not funny anymore (laughs) (laughs) you've ruined him for us (laughs) yeah you ruined it You being American, you probably swear less than us anyway, so. (laughs) Just less creatively, but I mean, you know, there aren't 
we one needs intensifiers, especially literary people and cultural critics. You know, you need ways to uh, vehementize what you're, what you're saying, and you know, fucking is about the best one. So, <laughs> like I say, we, we live in Glasgow, so it's uh, pretty much every other word. So. <laughs> <laughs> You guys should do a whole special episode on like excellent British cursing and swears that uh, we should get some of your researchers swearing. That would be good. That would be fun. We'll find someone that that would be great, actually. It does seem like it's the true, like, you know, censored spot in Victorian fiction. Like, there's plenty of sex and there's plenty of (laughs) sorry. Sorry. Hi, Luna. Right. Somehow it's a so Luna's my dog and she's just had her dinner and she's now celebrating by running around the house. So she's like, Yes. But that was actually gonna go in a really interesting direction. So sorry, there's there's loads of sex in the Victorian novel, but there's no swearing. I think that might be right. I worry mm. sometimes, right? I mean there's you know, there's obviously the stereotype that there's no sex, but of course there are people being bored all the time and there's intensities of relationships and there's you know extreme courtships and there's really hilarious you know master baits and so on right yeah um, <laughs> and dickens right um but uh or not puns um but it doesn't seem like there's much shit or fuck or arse talk and that seems boring and inaccurate but <laughs> i mean what are some good victorian swears like would they be the same ones I think they must. Silence. Yeah, no, it's all silence. Yeah, I think these are not new words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Two Victorianists that are like, I don't know. I'm not. <laughs> because we're Victorian literary scholars, and obviously, as mm. we say, it's not there. It's not. Wow. There's no swearing in the Victorian era. My we're God. totally naive. Yeah. <laughs> I think, because um, even thinking about popular things like periodicals and stuff and cheap literature it's still not there um mm-hmm. unless i'm really exposing myself now, no, right. yeah. i think it's still not there which yeah. is interesting um because i think i mean i don't know a lot about like medieval literature and stuff like that but i mean i think it's there in chaucer and things. oh yeah i mean there's loads of like dick and fanny jokes in, Ta- in chaucer totally. and- but whether that's constituted the same as a swear, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right, a gap in the long my practice knowledge. We'll have to get somebody on. Yes, you will. I mean, seriously, this seems like a real topic. All right. Anyway, I'm glad I can swear. <laughs> Excellent. All right. I will do your intro. And this is cobbled together from things I found on the internet. So if it's wrong, the internet's wrong, not me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hello and welcome to Law My Praxis. Today we're thinking big thoughts with Dr. Anna Cornblue. Anna is Professor of English at the University of Illinois in Chicago and she is one of the voices behind the fabulous V21 Collective Twitter account, which we stan. Anna has written all the books on Marxism, <laughs> realism and formalism and a ton of other critical isms that we don't really understand. <laughs> we're delighted to have her here so she can explain. Welcome to the podcast. No, thanks so much for coming on. Were we about right? <laughs> <laughs> does that does that encapsulate Anna? Oh yeah, that sounds good. Okay, right. great. <laughs> like encapsulated, yeah. So I, I mean, I'm really sorry. Like, I am shit at theory. <laughs> avoided it like the plague, and just lent into my nice little historicist disability studies niche. Um, <laughs> so 
yeah, really, you are talking to toddlers. Although, like we say, we have PhDs. Thank you. I have some. I have some critical theory background. No, you don't, lies. I, have, I do. I took. I took a course. I got a first. <laughs> well, I didn't take that course. I remember the word Habermas. <laughs> Why is theory so hard? <laughs> I mean, I actually think that these are like temperamental um, intellectual differences, right? That some people think, you know, from the small or the um, eccentric particularity, right? Victorianists especially, uh, on upwards, right? And other people think from like the big flash, like on downwards, right? So I think that they're, that it's hard for people for whom it's not their like you know, epistemic idiom or their almost like libidinal proclivity, right? Like I'm an abstract person. I like big ideas and I, and, and I think categorically and I like to have names for things and I like to have big schema of long historical periods. And I like to think about systems and how patterns and stuff, how stuff put together. And that's different than um, the sensibility of, um, you know, uh, the example, right, or of um, the particular or the, the situated, fascinating curio. And so then that that temperamental, I think, um, you know, kind of just like brain habit difference, really, in a lot of ways is over flexed in like literary studies, right? Because what we think of as knowledge, a lot of the time is lingering with the small thing or um, a different kind of attention to the detail or to um, the hyper particular conjunctural or the non-replicable. So I don't think it's that um, theory is hard in any objective sense. I think there are different temperaments. I like that um, spatial or almost like, yeah, framing theory as a, as a, as a question of scale is really interesting because yeah, that is like I, this week I've been writing sort of like introductory lectures and they're all for sort of like close analysis and close reading skills. And it is all about that kind of like the very kind of small detail of the text, right? How do you, like, that's where we begin in literary studies. Mm-hmm. And then in second year, they get kind of slapped in the face with like, welcome to eco-criticism, bitches. Uh, and they're just like, I don't know, why am I here? I want to go back to the level of the sentence. I don't, why do I have to care about nature and the big capital idea of what nature is and all these kind of big systemic things? So I think that's something kind of interesting that, that to me, there seems to be a bit of a shift in general, actually with like literary programs of trying to get theory in earlier or mm-hmm. trying to make it not seem so antithetical to that kind of small element. Because I don't think you can have one without the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess one problem would be, um, you know, why is literature something that people need to survive? Why is it something that <laughs> answer uh, big questions in the world? Or why is it something that people would want to study now? And we're certainly mm-hmm. under a lot of world historical pressure to not study it, right? Um, yeah. and, and I do think you could go the other way, that it's like, there are these unbelievable omnicrisis of problems, like, you know, on us, right? Starting with human extinction and ecocide and net down to... Let's start this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Financial inequality and, like, political corruption and then, you know, social immiseration, right? Um, and different forms of oppression. And, you know, why do we need the imagination and beauty and, like, you know, notions of a kind of otherworldliness, right, to help us out of these problems or help us attack? them so theory can be a way in for people who also like being with the sentence too because mm-hmm. it's a whole activating a whole kind of framework of like what's important about the imagination 
I mean, that kind of brings me nicely into like one of the first questions you wrote down, which is, what is the purpose of literary criticism when the world is literally on fire? Like, this is something, <laughs> this is kind of both a jokey question and also something I literally grapple with every week when I'm doing my work on ecology as well. Like, it's just sort of like, wonderful, I'm just going to spend two hours with this poem and then go outside and just be like, oh, shit. Um, <laughs> right. So can literary criticism save the world? <laughs> no. Oh, no. <laughs> You out of here, everybody. <laughs> you gotta think about your calisthenics and your exercises and your discipline, right? Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. saving the world is a collective praxis, right? No, no, it no it's just for me. I'm a hero. Working together, <laughs> right? You know, um, it is people working together to take back power from our violent oligarchs. It is people working together to demand conditions more hospitable to our flourishing, right? And working together in those ways means you need big pictures that you're worth fighting for. It means that you need stories that help people connect into the common visions of those big pictures or the common uh, formulations of values and stuff. It means you need tactics. So you need to be able to play out cause and effect, right? So there are all these kind of like habits of mind that go with social struggle, I would say, and that go with any kind of um, collaborative effort to, yeah, stave off the worst, mm -hmm. right? Um, and when it comes to ecocide, there, those habits are literary critical habits, right? Mm -hmm. um, understanding the resonance of terms, composing interesting, compelling formulations, right? Storytelling, bringing people along with you in language, uh, putting up, you know, imaginative portraits of, of how things should be, right? Mm -hmm. And that it doesn't have to be this way, estrangement and defamiliarization from like, this isn't all there is, you know? Yeah. Um, so those habits of mind, I think, are extremely valuable tools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the word um, they use their tactics. It's actually something I've been thinking about with other things in terms of like, yeah, literary tactics and different kind of forms of like militant tactics and things about how we can kind of move between those different sites and spaces. Should we just throw books at fascists? Is that... <laughs> But I also think, you know, there's a whole big um, tradition, right? A story, the Laurel tradition of saying literary criticism has nothing to do with anything, right? It's not, it's not useful for anything, it's not tactical. It's a kind of thinking that's totally oblique to the tactical, say, or also, you know, that everything should be useless, right? And the, uh -huh. that we should have the right to the useless or um, uh, the, the inoperative, right? Or um, literary criticism is camphor in your proceedings, right? It's like messing stuff up, right? And, um, you know, there's a lot of poetry in those descriptions of, of aesthetic and belletristic disutility, <laughs> as it were, or like, you know, trying to activate other systems of value mm -hmm. or something. But I do think that there's something um, affirming about claiming not a, a practical imperative or even a, you know, totally clear one-to-one -one translation of these minds, but of just thinking that higher order intellectual activity and careful attention and wild imagining, those are <laughs> foundational kind of human practices that have mm -hmm. to translate all over the place. I am reminded though of when my partner first heard about Alex <laughs> and, and I said that she did like environmental stuff, my partner thought that Alex was literally saving the planet and was absolutely raging when she found out that Alex was a literature PhD as well. She thought she was like some eco um, researcher, like actor. I am. But <laughs> she was like, she works on fucking poetry. What? <laughs> poetry can't do anything. Poetry changes nothing at all. I think it's really important though to sort of 
like um, think about stories. It's something that we've been kind of thinking about in um, sort of neurodiversity studies as well, because we work in medical models. But when we're thinking about lived experience, narrative is something that unites people. So it's mm-hmm. uh, I think it's important to sort of think about what stories can do, and, and maybe there's something to be said for not thinking that literary studies is always useless now like, I think there's no point yeah. in the useless scholar anymore and there's some stuff about like I don't know the use or like the value of literature I mean obviously that's I think it's probably something's happening in the states as well but very much in the UK there's like the last few years decade maybe mm-hmm. um there's been a constant denigration of the subject area and kind of like well what's the point there's no use you, t- you can't get a job studying poems so mm-hmm. there's like a very specific idea of like what use is and it's always attached to like mostly employability yeah, that's a mindset of absolutely forced austerity and of deprivation mm-hmm. of fundamental human capacities that we should totally resist. First of all, it's empirically false, right? There's lots mm-hmm. of data in the United States anyway that show that English majors' lifetime earnings are, you know, comparable with engineers and so on, right? You can go to humanities.org to check out some of that data, but um, it's just it's just a lie, right? It's mm-hmm. a political value being imposed as if it were an indisputable truth, right? Yeah. Can't yeah. do well. If you read even major trade press best-selling books by Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and so on, venture capitalists and uh, you know CEOs, they want critical thinking skills. They want imaginative storytelling skills. They say in like these, I'm not kidding, these real books like The Techie and the Fuzzy, right? They are not sex preferences. They're epistemic preferences, right? And they're like, you know, that we can teach anybody to code and also the code is going to change totally in five years or in 10 years, you know, but we can't teach anybody the history of human ideas, the history of human aesthetics, the history of human quagmires, right? And, and of um, struggle, those humanist traditions are the source of uh, innovation. You know? Yeah, no, that, I don't know if I hate that more. Yeah. <laughs> right, the idea of like, oh yes, I'm going to create the next generation of musks and uh, right. you know, right. you might Zuckerbergs. But how are you going to? How else are you going to? Um, I mean, the other. So that's one way to fight that. You know, false mm-hmm. austerity rhetoric, right? Is just with the facts, right? And the other way is with, I think, political demand that everybody has the right to look at art, that everybody has the right to, you know, think questions that there aren't answers to, that human beings are fundamentally speculative, that we made ab- abstract art before we could make fire. Like, you know, it just, there is something essential here about mm-hmm. curiosity and, um, and that that's what higher education should be about is, you know, actualizing those kinds of faculties. Oh, you know, I just, I, I really needed to hear this, but it's so fucking pumped right now. <laughs> but there's also this total, like, tinfoil hat thing of, like, they're saying the humanities are useless because they don't want us to be able to think critically, which is extreme, but kind of true. Kind of true. Yeah. Kind of true. Literary theory. <laughs> yeah. Quite a lot of things, actually. But I think we should... We should do our, um, do our, our things that we do. Yeah. <laughs> so we like to um, curate a jingle for our guests because um, we think that's important <laughs> in terms of thinking, you know, the idea of creative abstract art um, and also because we don't have any money so we can't buy jingles. So what we have is a kazoo uh-huh. um, and we're going to play a song, the, the kazoo of methodology, the methodology kazoo. We're going to kazoo a song for you. In our heads, it is somehow related to your work. Could you please try and one, name that tune, and two, 
why it is perhaps um, central to your research praxis. Okay, um, my dog may go insane. She is not incredibly fond of the kazoo. Right. <laughs> She's joining in. <laughs> Did you get that? Or should I try again? <laughs> you know, I'm just really bad at music. I have the... the, <laughs> the so how did you think that went? Sometimes yeah, you... Yeah. It, was, it was possible. Possible. I mean, maybe a little bit low-key, but it's mostly because I'm just worried about this dog going nuts. Should we try it again? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not doing. I don't sing, Louise. I don't know what key I'm in. <laughs> if it helps, they're about to go on a huge reunion tour. Or are they? Or are they? <laughs> oh no! I'm, I'm really bollocks at music. I guess. So. <laughs> oh, I really enjoy it. You know what? You've made up for it by saying bollocks because I love it when Americans say bollocks. It's great. <laughs> okay, it was um, Abba. Oh. Money, money, money. I'm not sure I even know that song. Does it, oh, is that one of their old songs? God, I'm so bad at this. <laughs> I was sheltered as a child from pop culture and then I never recovered. Uh, I see, <laughs> and that's why you went into theory. I understand now. <laughs> well, I mean, I do love, you know, movies and TV um, in a very bland Hollywood popular idiom, but I'm just bad at pop music, unless it's like my kids is listening to, you know, Sia, or um, <laughs> there's a lot of those girls called Little Mix. There's a lot oh, yeah. of them in my house right now. Nice. With a little token. Pop music is like program for the four-year-old brain, so... ABBA are about to go back on tour and I'm so excited. Maybe it was more of a European thing, to be fair. They're doing it through... Um, like avatars so like well avatars <laughs> but people are calling them avatars because it's like oh, a projection yeah. of the show and they've built the stage like so that they can basically tour forever which wow. i think there's a lot of readings to be done into that but maybe okay. we don't have time for that well is there like a signature lyric of money 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 that you should tell the opening lyrics i work all night i work all day to pay the bills i have to pay ain't it sad and still there never seems to be a single penny left for me. That's too bad. In my dreams, I have a plan. If I got me a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work at all. I'd fool around and have a ball. Money, money, money. Which sounds very Victorian realist novel to me, but I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it just sounds more like, welcome to Marxism. Yeah. <laughs> right. Everybody should be able to pursue their dreams and not have uh, worried about their basic needs. And nobody should be sold into prostitution as a way of trying to pursue those things. Not, not to denigrate prostitution. Yeah, we need for sex workers. We're here for them. How do people have access to the money that they need to get their basic needs met, let alone pursue any truly creative activity. Okay, so would you say that the methodology was correct then, in terms of like, if you had to pick a kazoo song to match up with your life's work? There are so few pop culture songs <laughs> about critical theory. You know what? It's really hard. <laughs> it's true. There are a lot about money. It's true, you know. Um, well, Madonna Material Girl, for instance. Mm -hmm. But um, it, yeah. 
hmm, how many pop songs about Marxism? I think, you know, there's this argument that Elaine Scarry and Caroline Levine, who are both Victorians, make that like work is very hard to represent but in literary um, uh, art because it's boring, it's repetitive, <laughs> you know, it's structured, it's the same all the time, uh, you're doing it for somebody else, right? Um, so that there aren't enough good like sort of literary fictions of work. And we have a lot of um, TV that are workplace shows, but they're not usually showing the people doing the work basically <laughs> like break time or whatever so is pop music particularly incapable of um representing just our daily grind i don't know i'm sure that some great music theorists like joshua clover would have you know a whole disposition to offer us about i mean the only thing i can think of is like wasn't the idea that actual like heavy metal was born in the factory because it was like replicating the sounds of different sort of like factory products and stuff like that so people like um yeah, Ozzy Osbourne and stuff was working at a tinning factory, I think. My Ozzy Osbourne knowledge is very minimal. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's like a, a whole school of thought about um, heavy metal as being literally to do with metal work. Right, just industrial clanging. Yeah, industrial clanging and that kind of like... Wow. This could be complete bullshit. Who knows? We'll get a music theorist on. the opportunity to bring in Dolly Parton. Uh, oh, true, of course, of course. Yeah, Iconic. My favorite fact about that song is that she started like playing the beat on her nails. And if you look oh, at the yeah. credits, her nails are sort of credited as uh, <laughs> yes. on the nail Dolly, which is just oh, yeah. Why are there no songs about Marxism? I mean, it's, you know, what what is the um, kind of cheesy, quick way to vehiculate big ideas, right? There's a kind of tension there. But at the same time, a lot of the power of something like Marxism or other kinds of critical theory, like psychoanalysis, like feminism, so on, is that they put names to what people are grappling with and what people have a kind of intuitive relation to as a struggle or as wrong, or, right, in their everyday lives. So, you know, people use pop music to, to make sense, right? Mm. And that, and, and to make joy, but to make sense, which implies there's a lack of sense <laughs> in what they're, what they're, what they're You're making me think that what we should have done is actually go for Rihanna and work, 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 work. Oh. That would have been much better. Damn yeah. it. Or no, it's my failing. I, like, I'm just not a good, um, I'm just not yeah. a good, Musical. <laughs> <laughs> there, because you've got, you know, was it? You better work. Um, mm-hmm. That's RuPaul. Oops. Um, but Brittany, you better work, bitch, is Brittany. Yeah, work, bitch. Like that's Brittany, isn't it? I'm yeah. guessing myself. But then it also works in the point of view of like free Brittany and the idea about freeing from the chains and all the things. Mm-hmm. Yes, the important movement. <laughs> I do have this idea. There's a um, a former student of mine who's getting her PhD now somewhere else, um, Rithika Ramamurthy. We have this idea that somebody should write um, an update of Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism that's about WAP. And sort of the various problems of like over injunctions to enjoy in the present and hypersexualization, but also kind of like a lack of sexual pleasure in so many places, you know, explicitness and then asexuality and kind of numbing everywhere. And um, so, you know, it, it's always feckin' territory. For- like macaroni in a pot, because that's it's like poet, it's poetry. It's poetry, but also because that's a ball about emphasizing the sound and the sensory, right? It's not about any connection to pleasure or desire. 
Like, I mean, maybe people are finding macaroni a lot more desirable. I mean, I, I really like macaroni, so I don't know. There's, there's... No, but it's like the cooking process, isn't it? It's not like, yay, macaroni is on my plate and I'll, I'm going to enjoy it. It's like macaroni in a pot. So it's the cooking process that she's talking about. And mm-hmm. that, like, that's just <laughs> boiling pasta. That's shite. Like, <laughs> like, you know, like it's, it's more about, it's about the privileging the sensory over any sort of desire or sexualization i think or social reproduction as like where the source of like actual important relationships should be right you know what's hot is when the man hoovers right so <laughs> like everybody has to do the drudge of making life go and if you because <laughs> it's interesting right because macaroni pot but there's another line that's like i don't cook i don't clean <laughs> so you know mixed messages Mm. happening here in WAP. That, I mean, stop me from writing the article on this. <laughs> I mean, I want to I read social reproduction and WAP. I mean, that sounds fucking yeah. great. But on, 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 the, on the kind of, on the line of um, sexual discussions, I'm trying to make a really bad segue here. Asuku. Asuku. Um, <laughs> <laughs> our next tailored moment of the podcast is the tinder bio so we've given the people the real bio of you and your work but this is the kind of like snappy filthy seductive how would you get us chatting to you at a conference yeah would we swipe left or right oh right and you want me to give you one yes give give us give yeah. us your tinder bio i mean it is true that i met my husband on the interwebs but that was back in the media archaeological era of like 2007 <laughs> so, <laughs> i said we're talking match.com plenty of fish like, <laughs> <laughs> no i mean so i'm trying to think about like i haven't actually ever seen a tinder bio but it's just supposed to be your flashy adjectives huh yes basically um i mean I'm definitely loud, um, and <laughs> maybe that's appealing. Maybe that's not appealing. Oh yeah, no, I don't know. What, I, Chuggy isn't the good one, right? Chuggy <laughs> <laughs> is live, laugh, love. Is yes. Aaron? I mean, that depends the on what's energy. Is Chuggy? That's okay. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. So for the, anyone listening who don't speak youth. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's something that they're saying these days. <laughs> how do you how do you spell it? I'm going on Urban Dictionary. I can't fucking spell it. I'm just like, <laughs> no. Okay, I'm sorry. This is pathetic. Here I keep just failing your prompts. You guys are trying to have a nice, funny podcast, and I am just not succeeding at it. Um, but it, these really are genres um, that I don't operate in. See, I'm just proving you that I'm a terrible cerebral. Um, <laughs> I'm just too into the theory. I don't access the real world. <laughs> I know. I just think about my body as this horrible um, meat envelope that carries around my head. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> <That> work. <laughs> yeah, loud meat envelope. I think that's pretty yeah. good. <laughs> oh yeah, talk Marxy to me. I mean, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> like, I think it's solid. I think it's. You know, we've been talking about pop culture and then mm-hmm. going out from there. So, it's, you know, Talk Dirty to Me is a is a moment, some would say, in pop culture. So I think it's <laughs> I also, I mean, th- there is one problem, though, in terms of, I mean, I, I think it's good. I like Talk Marxie to Me. But, I mean, we've all, we've all been to a, a conference and the Marxist panel or a Marxist conference and... You mean Marxist panel? What? What? You mean Marxist Manal, usually? Yeah, that's what I mean, the Marxist Manal. We've all been to the Marxist Manal. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the thing. The Marxist man always comes afterwards. It's just like, oh, have you ever read the, the Grundrisse? And you're like, shut the yeah. fuck up. I don't like Well, <laughs> and Capital. So what I would worry is that this Tinder bio would, obviously you'd get the Marxists who are generally, like, we're all on board with the Marxists, but the man or Marxists, you, you know the ones, you know the ones. I do, but I also think that this reflexive sense that that's a type, right, is its own constructed rhetorical move about discrediting Marxist interpretation, right? Like, we're incredibly prominent, incredibly brilliant, dynamic women Marxist thinkers, theorists, philosophers, right? C.N. Nye, Jody Dean, Annie McClanahan, Sarah Briette, Juliana Spar, Wendy Trivino, you know, there's poets there's um mm-hmm. there, uh you know bathrobes pierre that's her twitter name daniel <laughs> you know, um mackenzie so you know different kinds of marxism somewhere in there but like it's not a, a a boys club but there is on both kind of right and left a a, a functionality to that image of it that it is mm-hmm. now, right which is again to degrade the realm of necessity to degrade social reproductive labor to make it seem like women have nothing to do with the economy and nothing to contribute <laughs> to emancipation it's marxist bros not yeah. marxist hoes think about it <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah Marxist hoes, I'll take that. Oh, I take, I, but I prefer the Marxist bros to the anarcho bros. So I'll put it that. Oh way. yeah, no fear, fair, absolutely. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> what is it about Marxist theory that you think attracts bros? Well, why does it attract that? I mean, I think that's kind of interesting. Like, I, I, <laughs> I like this idea that no, there isn't Marxist bros, but that is a particular idea that we have put to Marxism to yeah. denigrate it. Mm-hmm. But why, why is it? Why is the bro a, a problematic figure to attach to Marxism? Do we think? Well, I think the bro is a theory, is a theory trope that is a way of rejecting theory, right? Um, it is, you know, if you like the big picture, if you like revelation, if you like the power of description and exhortation, right, you might be on the side of some things that get construed as macho, like bringing people together, like having an influence, like accomplishing things, right? But I don't think that building collective power is a, is a dick pursuit. I really don't. <laughs> and, I, you know, I think that, that being emphatic and being right and being compelling and winning people over, that that's good power. Um, and I don't think it's phallic power. I think that there's a a knowingness or a exclusionary indie rocker like what you haven't heard Deleuze's latest track or whatever it's like <laughs> David Foster Wallace yeah you know, it's, a whole, it's a whole like corner of intellectual and cultural stuff but it goes much more with music than it does with theory oh my God, it totally is the same yeah it's just, this sounds really terrible but I know two guys who write for like a really really like intense indie music magazine who are also like super big critical theorists mm. um and they just kind of go i mean that that's who i think of when i when i, I gotta, and like i said I, I do critical theory i know a lot of critical theorists but those are the ones that you kind of typify right it's weird good marxists don't skip leg day yes true exactly they need it for marching mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just bench press <laughs> right. I, I just see this kind of bro marxist at like the gym yeah, that's, yeah. that's what I'm seeing. Don't do that. No. But it is, I think maybe th- there's a way that we want to 
typify or sort of classify people's modes of enjoyment in public and their modes of how they relate to others. Um, And so there's a particular kind of enjoying the mastery that theory might potentially uh, you know, give you the illusion of having, right? Um, and there's a particular kind of of remove and of distancing oneself, right? And inoculating oneself that can come with, I have this corpus and it's my armor, right? Um, and, and you don't have access here. So it's, a, it's like a non-relationality or a, a non-openness maybe. They can take the forms of certain like, dexterity or fluency or authority right um but really the problem isn't that that marxists aren't good organizers or that marxists aren't good pop music uh, musicians or that they you know that they're not good tinder profiles right is <laughs> it hey, don't depreciate like <laughs> <laughs> it's like what, what you know what kind of relationality are you do you have on your face let's talk crypt theory you better work this that's right which brings us to um, a really important, really academic question. Shag, marry, kill. Marxism, <laughs> psychoanalysis, and formalism. Give us your choices and why. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, well, I think you obviously have to shag psychoanalysis, right? <laughs> That's just what he would want. That's what he wants. <laughs> but yeah, no, you're giving in there. Fucking Okay, tell me more about what kind of sex you want to have. <laughs> but um and then, you know, I think you have to marry Marxism because it's a theory of world history, right? It is an account of um contingency and necessity, is an account of the human, and it has both a, a elaborate historiography of the past, dynamic and inspiring mapping of the present, and a lot of, you know, projection and vision of the future, right? So that's for all time. you got to marry Marx. And what's that leave me with? Killing formalism. Uh Uh-oh. Let's say that that's because formalism is killer, right? You've got the rules, you've got abstraction, you've got impersonality, you've got shape, and and it gives you the contour so that you know what you're up against. <laughs> nice. Oh, I like that description. Of awesome. We yeah. see that. We see you. <laughs> but you do have to kill it, though. Like you can't, like yeah, you can't just sidestep it. So sorry. Goodbye. Well, right, no, I mean that's the thing about formalism, right? Is like you've got to have it, it, it. It's a certain kind of adherence to the notion that things are put together, right? That things are made, that things are constructed, that things are given form. And there's all this just loose, mushy formlessness that like people imagine is good art and that people imagine as emancipatory theory. It's like, oh, everything is all normal. (laughs) Just blurring and indistinction and, you know, rarities of hybridity and so on. The vocation of criticism is to hold things up. The vocation of the formers, right, is to make shape. Karl Marx, bourgeoisie, go down, bourgeoisie, go down, bourgeoisie, go down. So this kind of also brings us onto a a similar um, question, I think related, which is, is Oprah Winfrey the Derrida of our times? (laughs) No, she's the opposite of Derrida. Oh my God. It's very, very funny. I mean, I do 
love Oprah. And I always say as an injunction to theory, for instance, that like my greatest piece of writing advice to my students is say your biggest thing. (laughs) I love Oprah. But you know, she is more committed to the metaphysics of presence uh, than anyone probably in 21st century arts and letters. And um, <laughs> that's got to be the opposite of Derrida. You know, speak your truth, live your best life, you do you, uh, fi- you know, finding your voice. <laughs> I mean, it's Derrida a don't want any of that. you know, grammatology and write an inverse and it would be like Oprah's, you know, the anthology of Oprah magazine, you know, like <laughs> the, the self-identity <laughs> presence. No, no. I I don't think she's the dairy doll of our time, which doesn't mean that she hasn't like helped people think all kinds of meaningful thoughts or something like that, you know. Do you think she's ever written an essay about being naked in front of a cat? She likes dogs, doesn't she? Oh, I don't know. Derrida's cat, Oprah's dog. Written about mostly, you know, she is into expressivism, right? I think there there are not many things that would be out of bounds for her to write about. Is the question? Which theorist is Oprah? Yeah, no. Which theorist is Oprah? We have a game that's very similar to this. That you've a actually, game. Yes, yeah, so you've cottoned onto it. So we're going to give you a series of different maxims, and uh, we would like you to match them to the critical theorist of your choice, but you have to tell us why. Okay. So, <clears throat> live, laugh, love. <laughs> um, you know... Um... Adorno, right? It's definitely Adorno. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. I mean, I'm gonna have to go and this one might get me in a lot of trouble. But I definitely think that a lot of the movement of post critique and of attachment theory and of certain strains of affect theory has a exuberant injunction to live, laugh and love, which is <laughs> let every, you know, live and let live, laugh and love, right? uh-huh. which also just like in its alliteration, there has this enumerative flat quality um, that, you know, <laughs> is the Latorian ontology. I might get in trouble for saying that, but <laughs> okay. So live, laugh, love is post critique. Is yeah. what? Is, yeah, okay. Yeah. Like okay. Uh, Louise, do you want to do the next one? Yeah. Um, dance like nobody's watching. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, we could say that that is a fair amount of queer and gender theory today, I would say, where there is the notion that one is one's own, you know, one's one's own mirror, right? Um, and that one, one gets to assert out of a kind of drive to dance um, how one should be seen or that one should not be watched or that one should be regarded the way they want to be. So that manifestiveness, I think, um, is a big strain of a lot of contemporary gender theory. This is amazing. I'm really appreciating these answers. They're actually very good. <laughs> it's also the anti-Foucault, isn't it, where everybody's watching. Everyone's watching. <laughs> okay, um, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. <laughs> you know, I'm actually going to say that that is not a big strand of theory, but some of the really interesting and I think um, promising work that people are doing in like infrastructure studies and in new institutionalism and where there's an effort to say like what are the available tools <laughs> what has been so incapacitating about pursuits of purity and revolutionary horizons and messianic resignation and so on and um you know what can we do with what we have here and what actually do people achieve when they teach literary studies what actually do people achieve when they advocate for local reform or when they start minor institutions when they don't burn it all down but when they just do you know 
Something with available stuff. Yeah. Oh my God, I never thought Life Gives You Lemons would become like an activist maxim, but it's so great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Louise, final one. Prosecco o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> That's obviously full luxury automated communism. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have that book. I've never read it. I downloaded it on like as a holiday read. What was I doing? Yeah, I haven't read yeah. it. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I hate myself. I there, are, there are silly ways um, of expressing it, and there are lots of contentious debates in Marxist circles about mm-hmm. what's right and what's wrong there. But I think that up with pleasure, you know, up with mm-hmm. flourishing, like up with the right of everyone to, you know, have enough, you know, which isn't, you know, a right of everyone to be an Elon Musk and plutocratically carbonize the atmosphere. <laughs> so, you know, there are there is enough. There could be enough. Oh, I love that. I didn't think this would go as well as it did. My praxis by P R A X I S. My praxis by P R A X I S. This now means that we should move into like the really easy questions, which is um. Why is realism so good? Um, <laughs> what's it got on other generic forms? Yeah. And what makes it like responsible? I think is a term that you've used about it before. Oh, yeah. I think realism is so good. I mean, there, this is combining lots of other ideas from other people, you know, but it's so good because it has these vectors or axes of the intimate and the personal and the psychological and the interior with um, the social and the exterior and the estimate and the objective and the environmental. It's so good because, um, you know, at least in the 18th and 19th centuries, realism almost exclusively means, Ted Underwood has published a paper about this, third-person narration, right? It's Mm -hmm. so good because it means the kind of consciousness that we don't get in our everyday lives when we're in our stupid meat envelopes, right? It means, you know, so realism means a wholly unreal, wildly speculative commitment to thinking about things in in a non-phenomenal way, right? Outside Mm -hmm. of ordinary life, outside of ordinary bodies. Precisely though, thinking about then, quotidian rhythms, about uh, work, about, um, you know, the family, about social institutions, about cities, right, in these uh, ways that are recognizable, but using the power of fiction and the power of just a wild, inventive thought, right, Um, to, to estrange us from those things and to cast them differently. It's good because who doesn't want to know what somebody was wearing? Like, you know, <laughs> you know, like you don't want to just like be in these. I don't know these. Like, I can never figure out what's going on in postmodern novels. <laughs> it, would be a, it would be really helpful if I was like, she's in a pink dress and she's standing in the corner and she said it loquaciously. Like, <laughs> I need the adverbs. <laughs> I need the <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, there would be a it'd be like, she'd be in a pink dress, but it felt like salmon upon her skin. And when she turned around, you're like, oh, God, where the fuck am I? What's happened? Is she now a fish? Um, <laughs> the details are, are, are great portals and rapid, you know, drugs towards like um, all kinds of, of, you know, insane and unexpected things. Right. Um, details are weird. And if you add them up, you get more than just like what's already here. Sometimes I like realism, sometimes I don't. It's one of, it's one of the convince, one of the more convincing arguments for realism I've heard recently. It's nice, but what ma- what makes it responsible then? Like, is there like an ethics to realism? I would think 
I really am not interested in like demands for accurate representation or something like that. So I don't associate realism with that. I associate it with the project to imagine and theorize like what social relations should be and like what's the minimum of what should be in a society and how should things go in a city and like what should be our values and um, what should be the shape of things. Uh, So um, I think it's responsible to the human creative ethos. It's responsible to the, the, our, our fictifying abilities. And so when you find anti-realist texts that are often the things that we would think of are not, are not realist are on some continuum of trying to like extremize, right. Um, these imaginative capacities and and these speculative faculties, right? Like the realism sci-fi continuum. It's just a question of which limitations one wants to be responsible to in that respect, right? Realism is responsible to the time-space constructs of like the body mortality Mm -hmm. uh, time, right? Finitude. So, but I don't think it's responsible as in like it has a job, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, I don't think art has a job. I don't like the messaging models, even mm-hmm. for, you know, even though people might associate realism with certain kinds of, if I document this, then people will change their minds about yeah. this. I don't think art works that way, that mm-hmm. pathogenesis paradigm. I think finally, we're, we were going to ask about maths. What's math got to do with literature? Yeah, I love maths. Um, And I love that you got to call them maths. It's so hot. And it's so true to math being not a oneness, but like a multiplicity. So, you know, because we don't we have just boring math with no S in in American English. Um, (laughs) Much like I was just describing, right, that um, realism is this kind of like experiment and like, what holds things together and what should be math is really like, you know, kind of probing of what's possible. Right. Um, and what it's and what representation enables for human beings. Right. So we cannot experience infinity, but we can write it. We can't count it. We'll never get there, but we can come up with symbols for it and we can try to pursue logical specifications of the interrelations or of, of what would be attended. And those are um, they're completely you know, bananas, like um, uh, immoderate pursuits of knowledge that's outside of experience. And mm-hmm. I think that's what good fiction is. And I think that's what good theory is. And I definitely think is what math is. It makes me think back to some of the, the questions from the earlier part of this discussion about like how, I don't know, there seems to be like a divide between how literature is presented and sciences are presented. And like, as just as someone who never really pursued maths beyond whatever a level whatever it's called like it's because it was always said to be like it's objective there's a specific answer like that was always the way it was told us like mm-hmm. maths has a specific answer but english has so many Ooh. and it's like yeah okay sure there are some sums that you have to do that will only ever have one answer but yeah it is it's an infinitely creative space like it's problem solving and i just yeah i don't know i hate that um false binary yeah totally false binary yeah. what's harder theory or maths <laughs> <laughs> Oh, false question. They're the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, you know, the thing about math, right, is that it, the higher order math that happens in a symbolic language, right? And um, theory doesn't. It, ha- it has a promiscuous relation to the signifier, right? Everybody's always trying to elasticize, right? Like, I'm a theorist and I'm going to use the word, you know, um, plastic to mean the brain and also um, environmental destruction and also sculpture and also like my relation, my love for you, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> So, um, you know, we're, we're unruly with words and that, that can mean that people are, feel like they're swimming in jello when they're trying to um, read what's going on, right? But we're doing that unruliness to try to make something new. But math is, you know, absolutely sort of tries to subtract that semantic dimension, really, with just confronting us with pure symbol and pure code. Of course, this is also ideological. <laughs> or it's also made it's also you know a form right um but i think it it can it can bequeath the illusion that there's no certainty somewhere um even when you're talking about mathematical theory uh so it it can give the impression theory is harder so is theory really just a multitude of meanings no (laughs) I'm not into this, like just pluralizing. Um, I don't think the point of theory is, um, you know, just multiplying um, so that we end up with complexity or uncertainty. I think a lot of the vocation of theory, as I said, criticism makes a cut, right? Theory can actually tell us specific truths. It can formulate, um, not airtight, but convincing um, specific explanations. It's the domain of cause and effect. It's the domain of um, um, imperative um, and, uh, and of um, historical tradition. So it, it offers us lots of certainties and lots of answers that, that can be arrested, you know, it's not infinite play. It gets into the square root of things. Sorry, that's oh, my limit. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the end of the podcast. <laughs> my Let's get radical theory. Oh, leotards for theory. Leotards, leotards. There we go. There we go. <laughs> we don't talk about Adorno. No, no. That was great, I think. (laughs) Uh, We do normally end by asking if there is anything that you would like to plug. Do you have anything coming out, something that is already out, things happening in the future that you would like people to know about and we can share that? Oh, well, I think something we didn't talk about that um, is my you know, a book that I wrote for undergrads that is very accessible and very fun that everybody should read um, is the Marxist Film Theory and Fight Club book. Um, it's really cheap. It's a kind of elementary introduction to Marxist cultural theory. Why does why do Marxists have anything to say about art or movies or literature? Mm. And what are the things they've tried to say? And then why is Fight Club such a crazy movie from such an amazing year of crazy movies? And um, so, you know, I would say read that and send me an email. I'd love to talk to people about it. Oh, now I feel bad because we actually, I think we had to cut, we cut this question because we we're running out of time, but it was, um, the first rule of Marxism is only talk about Marxism. The second rule of Marxism is only talk about Marxism. And the third rule of Marxism 
is have a beard. <laughs> Discuss. Discuss. <laughs> answer that if you want. Um, you can answer now. We have we have we have one minute remaining. <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's none of this beard, but I like the only talk about Marxism <laughs> because it is, uh, you know, a big framework for understanding everything from you know why individuals suffer every day to why the earth is being murdered. Right? Its explanatory mm-hmm. power is unrivaled. So Boom. marry Marxism. That was a mic drop worthy. That was like <laughs> excellent. We've been Lomo Praxis. If you like what you heard, you can rate and review us on iTunes. Or to ensure that we keep producing world-leading, totally non-repable, excellent content, you can support us for the price of an overpriced coffee by signing up to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash lawmypraxis. You can get in touch with us by emailing lawmypraxis at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter at lawmypraxis. Shout out to our biggest fan, Jeremy Corbyn. He liked us on Twitter. Remember to tell your friends with apologies for a cross-posting. Bye!